Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website, blog, and radio. My passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's and memory loss, and that came to me through my mother's 30-year journey with dementia. For those of you that are new to the show, I just want to give you a brief introduction about Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Our goal here is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and empower them to live purpose-filled lives. We want to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's. Today, Rick Phelps, our channel expert living with the disease, will be with us. And so I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome, Rick. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Lori. How are you? I am doing wonderful. Um, Rick has had uh, was diagnosed with early onset back in June of 2010, and he is actually going to make a little surprise announcement later on in the show. Um, we also have our as our featured guest uh, Gary Joseph LeBlanc, who has written a book called "Staying Afloat in the Sea of Forgetfulness," which is an absolutely fabulous book. Um, But before I go into that, I want to just remind you that if you have questions, please um, go ahead and type them in the chat box, or you can call into the show live at 714-364-4757, and you'll be asked to push one to get into the queue and become part of the show. So with no further ado, I want to just give a brief introduction to Gary. Uh, Gary is, again, the author of Staying Afloat in the Sea of Forgetfulness. He's also a weekly uh, columnist of the Common Sense Caregiving and uh, down in Tampa um, Tribune, and he also writes for many other health publications. He has, um, his writings basically encompass over 3,000 plus days of personal caregiving experience that he has had. And um, with that, I'm just going to roll it out to you and say welcome so much for being with us, Gary. So happy to have you here. Um, I've read your book, and I was just amazed at how easy it flowed and how much valuable information it was uh, that was in there. So thank you so much for for writing this book and for coming on the show today. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to is there anything you'd like to add kind of to your background information for people? No, I just, the main thing I really, even writing the book, my main goal and everything was to be as caregiver-friendly as possible. I mean, and mainly the reason of being of it, because every time I read something, I mean, well, you could, the time you even put it back down, either you forgot what it was, it was so medical text, or it was just, you could tell it wasn't written from the caregiving standard. And that's what got me started on the column and everything, which has been three years now on the column, and this is the second edition of Staying Afloat. So as far as that, as far as my background at School of Hard Knocks of Caring for Someone with Alzheimer's Dementia, which is quite probably the biggest education I had in my life. Isn't it amazing? Can you give us a, a little more background on who exactly did you care for and, and you know what was the experience like for you? Well, I cared for my father, Joseph, for well, 10 years, but actually we worked side by side. We were partners in a bookstore for years, so I mean, I, we literally got to watch this disease from day one to the very last day, which normally the only other person is like a spouse or something like that, you know, but uh, working side by side, I just started seeing everything. I mean, 
basically the numbers. I mean, my father <laughs> never needed a calculator. All of a sudden, he couldn't, you know, count back change. I'm like, wow, there's something really happening here. But then you're going through the battle of trying to get him go to the doctor. I mean, it's it's a war all the way through it. So being a writer from uh, years in past, and dealing with it, I just every time I had something that I couldn't write about, I started writing a little skirt about my daily adventure and what was going on here. And every time somebody writes, they go, well, you got to do something with this. And that's how everything started with the column, and it all took off from there. The column basically started as a six-week special to our local newspaper around here, and uh, it hasn't stopped since then. It's been weekly for over three years now. Isn't that incredible? It's it is funny when you when you journal the important things in your life, and even if it's just um, kind of healing for yourself originally, how much it can help others once you once you decide to share it. And you know, having that three-year history just shows what a need there is, and um, I, I think that that's absolutely fantastic that you did that. Now, with your dad, how when did you kind of notice um, problems coming on with him? Well, it was little things, you know. Um, it was probably about all 12 years altogether you put everything together with it. As far as the diagnosis, mm-hmm. he was diagnosed for eight. On the deal on it, but getting him, uh, getting everything through on the deal, like couldn't to him. He goes, "Oh, who cares if I can't find my pencil?" I'm like, "Dad, we're not worried about the pencil, you know." Like I said, and it was, it was quite the tug of war and trying even to convince him. And at the same time, he had a doctor that was in his 70s at the same time, and I think those two were in cahoots. I mean, you know, <laughs> we ended up switching doctors and getting everything got better after that situation. But the first doctor he had, it was, uh, you know, my dad would walk in there and make everything looked fine, you know. But you know, we all knew better. I mean, people in the surrounding him and everything, so. The one thing about Alzheimer's, they can they can really hide their their symptoms very well there at first. Well, it's because it. it's the social skills, you know, when they've got those social skills, it it uh, it's absolutely amazing. I know my mom was the same way, and my dad helped her hide them, and then I realized I was helping hide them too, you know. And uh, there's a fine line between, you know, what's hiding and what's preserving dignity. And, you know, what are people's true motives in terms of doing this? But it it is something that has to be discussed, and, and we shouldn't be embarrassed, you know, about this. I've always said uh, denial is a symptom that affects everybody surrounding the patients. I mean, it's, it's not just the patient. It affects everybody on the denial. So once you get very, past that, it, everything goes smoother. I know very I do a lot true. of speaking events here in the local area, and uh, usually when I start out my speaking events, one of the first things I'll start out doing is I'll ask the, the crowd, I'm like, I go, what do you think is the biggest mistake a caregiver makes? And I hear everything. I mean, uh, yelling at the patient, not taking care of your caregiver's health, everything. And to me, the biggest mistake is not asking for help. If you can ask for help early on and learn to do this, I mean, you're going to be so much you're going to solve half the other problems. I know with my dad, I mean, I was I did it wrong. I mean, I, I would be the first one to admit. I was like, this is a family situation. This is my responsibility. But bottom line is this becomes a two-person job. I mean, if you don't learn to ask for help from the beginning, at the end you don't even have time to breathe. you got to do what's best for both of you. Well, yeah, and and even when you have a family to help, there's usually one person that ends up taking the brunt of orchestrating. And I know for me and my family, I was the one that stepped up to the plate. And by doing that, you're also you're giving permission for the others not to have to step up. But I know I also created an environment that why should they? Because they were never going to meet my standards because my standards were so exactly. high. And 
and I mean, so we're, we're as guilty as this as everybody else. But I mean, it's uh, that's why I always preach that when you start this adventure, or I want to call it adventure, but this journey, this campaign of caring for your loved ones, that's when you got to learn to put, you know, put your standards down and ask for help. You say, a lot of it's pride. I mean, you know, it's your loved one, your family member, you know. Bring in an outside help, but it's so important that you do. And the better off, the earlier you do it, the better off everyone's going to be. Very, very much so. So, can you tell us, you know, when you were writing this book, if you had to just sum up in a sentence or two, who who would be your ideal target market for this book? Support groups, caregivers. That's who it's all really for. I mean, as far as the patient itself, I'm doing it from the caregiving standard. I mean, even a patient might learn something about it. I mean, they're going to see what's coming up in the future and dealing it. Like I said, I was I kept my dad home to the very end. I mean, he he passed here in his bedroom. I was holding one hand, my sister had his other, and uh, I'm very grateful for that. You know, because it's um, but it's very hard. I mean, hospice came in the end, the last six months. Um, I don't know if I would have been able to make it the last six months without them, but we kept them home the whole time. So that's, that's something that I have a lot of gratitude about. At least I know that he was in a familiar environment. You know, he knew the room somewhat. I mean, I don't know exactly what he knew in the end. The last, the last month was, you know, pretty rough. And mm-hmm. anybody that's been through it, they know. I mean, well, and there's hospice, always that blessing in the end. You can, you know, you, everybody feels guilty about it, but it's like, okay, there's no more suffering, you know. But yeah. uh, and there's a lot of guilt involved and everything on it. But there's, uh, well, there was something about keeping him home. Yeah. Hospice is such a gift, and so many people are afraid to tap into them, um, and and they just they make the journey so much easier because they've been there, they've done that, they've seen it, and they're just so compassionate, um, and they really can help you focus on what's best for the patient and the person before you, um, as well as dealing with all your own emotions and stuff. That's what I found, anyways, when dealing with my dad and other other family members. Just truly, truly a gift. Now, would you say that the book would be helpful for um, professional caregivers, you know, doctors, oh, nurses, a, people? Without a doubt. Okay. Without a doubt. I, I wish I, anybody, I, anybody I, dealing with the memory impaired should read this, really, because it's, you know, uh, one of the biggest things I preach is in this thing is routine. I mean, this is like, to me, it's number one and number two on the list of the keeping it. I mean, Little things you don't realize, but when as the as the campaign goes further down the road, how much routine is going to help you? You know, so you start them off in a routine at first. I mean, I used to have a little blue bowl of pills that I used every day and every morning, every morning, every evening. I'd get my dad's pills and those things. If I put those pills on a different plate or just put them in his hand, he would. Refi- it was a, another battle going on. It's like these aren't the pills I had yesterday. You know, you, you're trying to poison me. I mean, it, it would go from one thing to another with it. I just keep it a routine. Dinner the same time. Breakfast, you know. And you know they lose their total time of sense. They have no more sense of time anymore. So routine's going to help everybody through it. You yeah. Know, like I said, um, yeah. write a journal. It's very therapeutic. And but also by keeping a journal, you can keep notes of what time of day and everything that's going through. I'm not trying to make everybody a writer, but I mean, uh, even if you put a calendar on your refrigerator and you mark things down as daily, you get an idea of how the routine flows. Yeah, because it is stuff that we take for granted, but yet we don't calculate it. We don't really process it. And, you know, the other day I had uh, Laura Beck with the Eden Alternative, and, I mean, she was talking about really, you know, taking charge of inventorying the environment. So down to, like, room temperature or noise levels or clothing or, you know, 
furniture arrangements. I mean, just everything because you just exactly. don't know what it's going to be. And and all of those things we just we don't even see in our daily lives because again, we just take them for granted and we have to we have to step back and process things on a much deeper level because some of these things are so simple to change and to become part of a standard routine to remove what we call the behaviors which are really just triggers to something that's not comfortable you know for them and it's the only way that they can communicate no matter what level they're at i mean we all we all do that you know um now, you don't want to move a painting like around on the walls, which, you know, redecorate, just keep everything standard to them. Christmas time, people don't realize these blink and light decorations, what what you can actually do. I mean, you know, I know everybody wants to sell their, celebrate their last holidays all together, but you know, all of a sudden they get trees with lights on it and everything, and it can really send these people for a ride. I mean, it's it's sad. Yep, the, the hustle and bustle, it's knowing your, knowing your person. And if it was someone who really enjoyed the holidays, it, it might be a real calming thing for them. I mean, you don't know. Everything is so, so individualized. The, the one thing I really liked that you said, Gary, was that, that everybody should read this book. Because as a, as a speaker like you, I always get asked, who is your target market? And people will say, you know, <clears throat> is it the professionals, you know, is it administration, is it family caregivers, or is it the person who has dementia? And I'm a firm believer that we have got to start talking to people's language and we have to, professionals have to become bilingual and stop trying to put people into categories in terms of who they are at the moment. Because to me, this disease really ebbs and flows with, through these stages with good days and bad days and ups and downs. And, Rick, you can maybe talk to that. And is my perception correct on that, or do you really feel that there are set stages that you fall into? Oh, oh it's, it's, it's just so difficult, Lori. I can tell you from my perspective, just like Gary said, holidays. Holidays are tough. They're just uh, – it's it's all about family and everything, and, and I love each and every one of my family members, but, but the amount of people in one house, you know, anything over me, false June, and one other person is a crowd to me. And I just, it, it, it's just so hard to get through, let alone, like Gary said, the blinking lights, the noise, the sounds. I mean, it it's a mind thing, and it's hard to explain, but it absolutely drives you up a wall. Okay. Now, Gary, let's get back to your book. Um, can you tell us, you know, how did you structure your book? Because your your book is structured, I think, a little different than some. And I really, I really enjoyed, you know, kind of the postal carrier letter, you know, dear caregiver, um, for each section. So, can you tell us how you came to that and, and why well, you chose the format you did? I've decided that every time you're working on it's so hard to get away from the sadness and the you know the depression of the subject matter. So I wanted to do like a silver lining in between chapters, and that's kind of what got me to that. And I decided to do with the Dear Caregiver postmarks and deal and everything on that. But um, basically, this is the second edition of this book. I wrote the first one right after my father died. And then a year and a half later, life's a lot different. <laughs> so I went back and... <laughs> I really, my goal was to redo a second edition of this later on down the road, and it pretty much fell through the goal, fell exactly the way I wanted to do it. But on the second edition on it, it was more of, um, you just see everything different. Like, for example, after my dad passed, it took me 11 months to sleep through a whole night. I mean, because mm-hmm. I'd been sleeping with one eye and one ear open for for years. 
you know, and all of a sudden you realize, you know, you just, you know, it just takes you so long to get out of it. After your loved one's gone, you're in this void, and it's, you know, you've, I'm sure you've experienced it with your mom and everything else. It's, it's a lot of, a lot of adjustment. I kept saying to myself, well, after this is over with my father, I'm going to take a trip, go visit some old friends. I didn't even want to leave the county. <laughs> I mean, I was just, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden you can actually go to the store. But they, that sounds like something that's good, but it takes so long to readjust. And I wanted care, caregivers to be aware of that. Uh, there's a lot of depression yeah, involved on both sides. And for a caregiver, some, some caregivers can stay in depression for three to four years after their loved one's gone. So, Yeah, which anxiety is, I think, extremely and, common. Anxiety and, and is one thing that's. Uh, I'm sorry, but I was one thing I was thinking is anxiety works on both sides for the, the patient and the caregiver. So anxiety and depression yeah. is something that really needs to be addressed and uh, not be ashamed of. I mean, it's you know if you're having problems, talk to you talk to your doctor. That's what they're there for. Because it's I can't yeah. think of anybody going through this without having some depression involved. I mean, it's it's almost impossible. So, and I think if somebody tells you they're not, they're not telling you the truth there. Yeah, it, it's a it's a normal process. It's you know to have all these types of feelings. I know after my dad passed and he had brain cancer, but I was, you know, we were really close, and I was primary caregiver, all of that. I, I didn't know who I was. I mean, I literally lost myself because my identity was a caregiver for both my mom and my dad. And you know, we don't talk about losing ourselves in this process sometimes, and and we don't talk about balance. We don't talk openly as a society as far as self-care. And that that's a really, really critical, critical piece. Do you address that in your book at all, Gary? Yes. Yeah, that's okay. the second edition of it. I really kind of stressed quite a bit into it in the end on it. It's uh, it's a big adaptment, a big adjustment you got to go through on this. So. And I just wanted to make sure that it's, it's common. I want people to think, that, hey, what's wrong with me? I mean, it's, you know. Like I said, doctors are there for a reason. You know, don't be afraid to talk to them. If you're if you get it and it's in your mind, you you think you should talk to your doctor about it. Talk to your doctor about it. I mean, mm-hmm. don't go without it. You know, sometimes support you, groups uh, to me are the best thing in the world. I mean, you know, what amazed me the first support support group I ever went to was the amount of people that were still going and attending these groups, and their loved ones had passed one two years ago, but yet they still attend these yeah. meetings every once a month or whatever it is. And that just shows to goes to show how what caregivers. They get so involved in trying to help everybody else. Once a caregiver, always a caregiver. I, I truly believe that. Well, and you I might I, be looking to, oh my, my plant's dying or something, but you know, you're looking for something to help after you've gone through it for so many years. Yeah, uh, but I think like with a support group, one of the biggest things that people um, underestimate is the power of the friendships that are developed, and <clears throat> and it's important you know, once you've reestablished those friendships, because as caregivers a lot of times, excuse me, as caregivers a lot of times we lose our friendships or we aren't as active as what we once were, uh, that's not something you want to walk away from. You know, it's not a quick fix. It's about life balance and engaging wherever you feel comfortable and what fills your soul. And, And I think so many of the caregivers who have maybe either lost a loved one to the disease or maybe they are caring for them at home and have had to place them. You know, things shift and change. But I think you also realize over time through others how much you've learned and then how much support you can be to others. And so, you know, it's not, you know, support groups, I think, 
I think some of them are really structured. Um, I was talking with somebody the other day, just when we were doing the memory cafe, and and they, you know, their opinion was very, very different than mine in terms of who the support group was for. And they said, well, once once someone has lost their loved one, you know, they don't need to come anymore. And it's like they, they're part of the group. We're not going to kick them out when they're down. No, you know, people they, have valuable valuable information to to pass on to the others. There's one thing well, about and, caregiving. And it's going to be a life-changing event. There's no question about that. Yeah. I mean, your your social life that you had before just dwindles away and, you know, and disappears. And this is only natural because the general public doesn't understand what we're going through and like that. You know, they don't they have they don't really have the concept of like I can't leave them alone for 15 minutes. <laughs> it just isn't possible anymore. And they, that's a hard time for the general public to understand. But um yeah, yeah. For support groups I I highly stress how important they are. I mean, they're if anything, it gets you out of the house for an hour. I mean, like I said, you get a little social life in there, and you're there's a bonding in between somebody that's in the same shoes as you. I mean, that you go through that, you know. Plus, you're walking out of there saying, you know, I'm not the only one going through this. I'm not as crazy as I thought. I mean, there's other people with the exact same situation. So, go. Well, that's and the other line. thing is, is sometimes people judge a support group on, you know, they'll walk into one, and, and it might not be a good fit for them, personality-wise. Don't judge all support groups based on that because every group has a different dynamic. And, right, different um, leaders, different groups. I mean, yeah, if you're not happy with the first one, just try another one. I don't know how it is up in your area, but here we have there's quite a bit of support groups down here in Florida in our area. I mean, actually, yep. this, uh, the 17 counties, what they call the Gulf Coast chapter down here, there's only eight more states with people at all times than this, just these 17 counties. The numbers wow. down here are, you know, a lot of the retirement and stuff like that. But, I mean, the numbers here are extremely high for the people diagnosed exactly. with all things. Well, and, so. I, and I think, too, a support group doesn't have to be a formal group either. I mean, it can just be getting together with friends that right. are able to support you and understand and, you know, want to, want to pull you back in and help give you balance. And a lot of them want to understand your journey but as caregivers, we've, we kind of sometimes shut down and we don't share what's really, truly going on. And I know what I found with my, my own peers was that when I opened up, they weren't there yet, but a few years later, many of them were, and they've come back and said, you know how helpful it was to know what was coming ahead just through listening to your journey and the power of the story. Um, is incredible, and again, I, I think that's what's so great about your book. The other thing I really, really loved about your book, Gary, is it's one of those where you can sit down and read it all at once, or it can be kind of like a chicken soup book, where you can just pick a, you know, pick a chapter, pick a story, and and get something solid out of it. And so, depending on what type of reader you are, or what type of time, because a lot of times when we're when we're really in the crux of all this, sometimes people just don't have time to sit down and read a book in order, and um, I, or, or they I don't purposely, even have. I purposely toned down my writing on this because I wanted to be. I don't want to say layman's, you know, that term I use like that, but I know how stressful it is as when you're caregiving, as you can't even get off the front page of a newspaper in the morning sometimes. I mean, so if between the stress and everything going on and the little time you have, so I wanted to make it as an easy flow. I wanted to make it so you could use it as a reference. And you come back on a certain subject if you're talking about routine, or you're talking about redirection. You know, you can just flip back to the chapter. That's why I made sure there was an index in the back. 
I mean, it's, uh, I want it to be used as a guide and a reference book, not just uh, a lot of the books that are coming out now. I mean, a lot of them are memoirs, and that's that's great. I mean, everyone's got the story to tell, but that, this is, to me, I want this as a resource guide, and that was my goal with the book, be used as a resource for, to help the caregivers. Can you, can you highlight maybe a couple of um, chapters in here that are your favorites and why? Um, definitely the routine, without a doubt. Um, anxiety, anxiety. What I always say, like, I like to say, is like, so imagine if you go, you know, everybody goes through this. You walk into a mall, you go out shopping, you're there for a couple hours. You go walking out the back to the back doors to the parking lot, and you can't find your car. The parking lot's full. Everybody, you get this wave of panic and this wave of, you know, fear. Like, oh my goodness, where is my car? How am I going to find this thing? Well, this is somebody with all times dementia. This is what they experience all day long. And to me, anxiety is one of the most things important to take care of. The they get all the medications out there for the Alzheimer's right now, but to me, concentrate on the anxiety and depression is going to get you that much further on the deal in it. I mean, you've got to move yourself into their world and not try to pull them into yours because that's impossible for them anymore. You really got to readapt. You got to readapt your life for them on the deal in it. Uh, redirection, to me, that's another important chapter on the deal on it. I mean, uh, one thing I always want to tell everybody on the deal is that there's something about touch, taste, and smell that you can turn their thoughts around much quicker. For example, you take two washcloths, you get a green one and a blue one. Just hand them both cloths and say, hey, which one of these do you like better? Now they have something actually in their hands. You know, they might fold it. You might get an answer two hours. You might never get an answer, but that's not the point. The point is that you're returning them. You can tell what you're carrying for so long that, okay, you can see they're snowballing. <laughs> Something's going on. They're starting to pace. They're fidgeting, you know. This is when you've got to use the redirection. So I think this chapter is very important, too. But there's something about taste and touch, you know. When they're turning around, they're getting all upset. And go, hey, what, hey what's, what do you think of this flavor? You know, let them actually taste something. And you'll turn them much quicker than, than uh, just trying to use a sentence and words. So those are two of the highlight things I would say on it that are that really stick with me. The, I think the uh, hardest I, things I, I had with my dad was the hallucinations. That was that was probably the roughest part of the disease for me. So it got really bad in the end. And there was redirection. It was beyond that. And again, towards the later stages of the disease. And that's where you really got to pull out all your endurance. And really, it gets tough. You know, what they think and see, they believe. You not don't even try to convince them because it's it's too real to them. It's as real as the ground you're standing on. It's you know. And again, routine. That's where routine will come in. Yeah. Did you go through a lot of medication type things with the hallucinations and? You know, yeah, he was, was a little bit. I won't say a lot, but towards the end, yes, we eventually we had. He was on, you know, some stuff for the anxiety and all that. But after a couple of years, I mean, it's like, you know, you increase the dosage a little bit here and there. But when it got down to the very end, I'm talking about the last year, it mm-hmm. seemed to get to the point where not much really worked. I mean, it was, when it was strong, it was strong, you know. He went through a stage where every morning he woke up and he thought he was on a train. I mean, literally, he'd be like, you got to let me know when my next stop is. That next stop's got to be mine. I don't want to miss my stop. And it's like, you know. And one day I, I broke my rules. And I said, Dad, we're in the house here. We're not on a train. He literally put his hands on the kitchen table, and he goes, listen, I can feel the train moving. You know, like the table was vibrating. It's you know, uh-huh. I mean, it's as real to them as why. There's no theory on why he thought he was on a train. I could never figure it out. I mean, his father worked so for the railroad. No history and his, that you could... No his father did work for the railroad on. years ago. I mean, I mean, I don't have anything to do with it, but there's really no common sense on why or what. I mean, it's and it's it gets bad. I mean, it's I, I maybe not with everybody, but we had a bad problem with it. 
one problem about Alzheimer's is it's so frustrating that every, like you said, every patient responds differently. Frustrating for the caregivers, frustrating for the doctors. It's you know, when one medication works for one, doesn't mean it's going to work for the other. I mean, it's very tough. Now, I liked your chapter on backup, designing a backup plan. Um, why was that one important for you to write about? Because if you don't have a backup plan, you don't have a plan at all. <laughs> Bottom line is, I guess, you know, for example, I, you know, I sprained my ankle once while caring for my dad, right? So I'm hopping around with one leg, you know, 30 times in an hour. Hey, what happened to your foot? You know, <laughs> over and over. I mean, you know, you, you know, when you get sick, or even if you got a fever and you're trying to t- do all this all together, it's it's almost... You know, you've got to have somebody to come in and step in your shoes just in case. I mean, legally, even. I mean, your power of attorney and all that, and something happens, what if you die? You know, you want the mm-hmm. court to come in and appoint a legal guardian that you don't even know? I mean, this is, you've got to have a backup plan. You've got to talk to an elder law attorney, get everything set up legally. You've got to have a caregiver, a side caregiver that can come in and knows the house and knows the system. You've got to almost train these people to step in. So you got a plan. I mean, accidents happen, and they happen quick. You know, that's that's life. Yeah, they don't give you time to adjust. That's, that's for sure. No, and when, like I said, they happen in microseconds. And uh, let me tell you, it's, it's and they never go well. I mean, so you got a plan. If you don't have a backup plan, you don't have a plan. That's the bottom line, in my opinion. Okay. Now you also have a chapter on here about driving. I mean, he has. Gary's got stories. I mean, there's he's break, he breaks them down really easy, so you actually know what you're gonna read. He's got like 81 different different little chapters here, but they tell you what it is you're reading, unlike some kind of fluff title. And that's one of the things that I really appreciated about the book. It's like, okay, I can I can I can probably get my answer here instead of trying to drill through a book hoping I'm gonna find some nuggets. You really simplified the process for people and I, I I just commend you on that because I, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes out there yeah. because people need to find things quickly and, and you really did design this to be caregiver friendly like you said. So I, I I applaud you for that. But can you give us um on the driving was that something you personally went through with your dad? Oh, yeah. The driving, mean, driving is tough, and everybody's going to go through it. It's just like taking away their last little bit of independency. And, you know, I mean, there's there's so many little things you can do. But um, one thing I did is I actually I took the key. I had, a, had an Oldsmobile. I just switched it out with an old GM key that I had. He thought he still had his original key. The key didn't work to anything, you know, but at least he had keys in his pocket. made him feel better, you know, and stuff like that. I thought the driving thing was over, and it was uh, – Five years. He hadn't driven in five years. We were sitting in the living room one night, and he looked at me. Last, he always thought I was his father, so he'd call me dad. And he looked at me, and he goes, Dad, isn't there a senator or a governor you can call to get my license back? And I'm like, where did this come from? We haven't talked about driving in years, man. But all of a sudden, it popped back up. I mean, but, um, you know, I went about it the hard way. I told him that the doctor... The doctor took his license away, called up the state. Well, I went through about a year of him cursing that doctor going, you know, and everything else. But now there's different laws. You can call up your motor vehicle department. You can fill up an anonymous form. They call it a medical driving report. And they send him an appointment in the mail, and he has to take an on-road driving test. I mean, it's uh, one way to do it without putting you in and causing a lot of headaches for everybody. But driving's tough. That's, uh, I mean, when you see the silver alerts, I don't know if you have them when you're a state, but... Uh, you know, these are people that are driving their car when they should be. The only problem with the civil alerts is some people are walking, you know. But uh, yeah. you really have to, someone's going to get killed, bottom line. you got to get them off the road when, when it's to that point. 
But it's not yeah. going to go easy. Yeah, I, I don't know anybody that told me that they, it went smooth when they took away their license, you know, their driving privileges. But it's not only yeah, them you got to worry about. My mom, I was lucky with because she, she, it scared her. So she just really stopped driving. Um, and so we really didn't even try to take away her keys or anything. She just didn't. It, it just scared her. Um, she got lost a couple of times and had panic attacks because she didn't know where the heck she was or how she was going to get home. And that was enough for her to say, I, I can't do this. With my dad, who didn't have dementia but had brain cancer, um, it, it just got to the point where he um, physically didn't have the reactions that he used to have. And so, you know, that that was bad. And they ended up getting in a really bad accident. And we're still, we'll never know whose fault it truly was because up until then we didn't think that there were issues. But after the accident, he really physically couldn't, um, you know, handle the car. But he didn't want to give up the keys either. So we we let him have the clicker, and then we put another key on the clicker. And he never tried to drive, but, you know, I would always drive their car so there was the familiarity for them. Um, but half the time we'd, you know, pull out of the garage and the trunk would be open because he'd be click, 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 click. Right. <laughs> you know, I'd have to get out and shut yeah, it. I've heard other people where they've pulled the battery Letting them have their keys. Letting them keep their keys in their pockets and all that, or it's just something that's you know it's, it helps them a little bit. So just don't have the right keys yeah. on there, you know. Yeah. You were fortunate with uh, your situation with your mom and all that. My, my dad doesn't. He get to the point where he wasn't even a good passenger in the car. I mean, we'd be driving back and he'd get upset. You don't know where you're going. You're going the wrong way. And he's literally opening the door while I'm driving. And oh, I was God. at the point where I was going to take the inside door handle off and you know do it. I mean, it's. So it's, it's not only driving anymore. It's just, you know, a lot of people think they're fine. They're having a good day. But the little bottom line is they could pull up and get two miles down the road and hit a stop sign, and all of a sudden they get overwhelmed with confusion. So, I mean, yep. it's uh, it only takes a mile down the road sometimes, not even before it starts. Can you can you share with us, you've got a, a chapter here on body language, um, communication skills, the five W's in, in speech therapy is what you've got. Can you share a little bit about that chapter with us? The body language is something that's going to come in time with every caregiver. I mean, you just after you're with somebody 24-7 and you're watching their moves every day, you start noticing their facial expressions and everything else. I mean, even from, you know, when incontinently you can see when they got to use the bathroom or you just see different parts of the day and everything else. But, you know, you have to – communication gets tough. I always believe that as a caregiver, you got to be part speech therapy too. You have to keep them talking. On the it. When they get down to one, two-word sentences, I hate to say it, but everything snowballs really quick from there. And the deal in it. I mean, so I mean, little things that work. But as far as um, to the five W's, who, when, where, which, why, whatever they all are at this point, you you got to be careful in how you ask them a question. You know, let's just say so you want them to go in the bathroom, shower, brush your teeth, and all that. You put all that in one sentence. You say, Hey, come on, Dad, let's go in the bathroom. We're going to wash, shave, and brush your teeth. You just said three things in one sentence, and they, they're lucky if they remember one. So you just got to keep going on it. But as far as the actually feeling them, that just takes experience and all that. You're all going to get it. All caregivers are going to learn. I mean, you just it just becomes part of the caregiving process. You know, I mean, you know, with your mom and all that, you just see one certain look on her face, and you know there's something wrong. So that that's what I'm basically trying to stress on this thing. You got to feel feel off their emotions, and they feel off of your emotions. If you're having oh, a bad yeah. day and you're all frustrated, don't think that's going to wear off on them. I mean, they know. 
So yeah, it's hard. It, it Everything's is, hard about them. But you you got to keep pawing them. you got to keep yourself, you know, go outside and kick some dirt. That's what I always say. You know, who cares what the neighbors think? And you go out there and, you, you you know, don't show your frustrations in front of them. Go outside and take a little walk around the house and come back in for one second. Everybody yeah, needs a breather. That's good advice. Now, you have um, a chapter here on Closet of Simplicity. Can you explain a little bit about that? I'm just going to kind of pick out some of these things because your book is just loaded with such well, this, great information. It goes back to routine also. I mean, when I think the morning is one of the most vital parts of their day. You know, if they're getting up in the morning and they're frustrated right from the time they're getting out of bed, how's the rest of their day going to go? And yours, I mean, as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. So with my dad, I mean, he was like, get to the point where he couldn't tie his shoes anymore. We had all these problems going on. So you know what? He's t- after 30 minutes of trying to tie his shoe, and you're wondering why it just went flying across the room, you know, you can figure this stuff out. I mean, some go to Velcro strap shoes. The last thing you wanted them is to open up their closet, and there's 30 dresses hanging there, 30 shirts, and they're going to try to pick out what they're going to wear for that day. It's just too much. Limit their choices down. I had five pairs of shirts, five pairs of pants hanging there. Empty out their closet. Just put in what you, basically their needs, and don't make this whole deal go through everything in the morning. I mean, it's bad enough that you know they're waking up and you know they're, you know they have to take their pills. It's just all that's going on in the morning for them. So I mean, you wanted their mornings to be smooth. I mean, I, my dad was a man who wore business suits all his life, and and yet he's wearing sweatpants and pull-up shirts and everything. I'm like. I would never thought in a day earlier that this, he'd ever adapt to that wardrobe, but he did. Because what's easier? Looser the well, clothes, the better. I, That's what it seemed to be the most for me. I couldn't yeah, even get my dad to I, wear socks. The last two years of his life, never get him to wear a pair of socks. Mm-hmm. It sounds like Something my daughter would do about when the tightness. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Or it could be the seam and the toe. It, it could be all kinds of different things uh that right. you know and it's just it's not it's not worth it who cares you know yeah. the other Something thing I think that's really helped, helpful helpful with clothes is is having <laughs> season appropriate clothes um so that they don't have to figure out is it and you don't have that down in Florida but in Minnesota we could have our summer wardrobe or spring or fall or winter but have clothes that are season appropriate so that takes that out of the realm in terms of choice for them, and again, just simplifies things, because Simplify. a lot of times people go, oh, they they can't pick, you know, what season appropriate. Well, that's that's a real easy thing to fix, you know, just get it out of their way, right. so it's not not a choice that they have to make, um, and it makes everybody's life a little little bit easier there. Everybody's um, different. Some people they won't. You can set up their clothes that night before for them the next morning. Some people don't like that. I mean, you know, it's every you're going to deal with different personalities and everything. My dad would lay his pants across the bed at night. He was a habit that he always had. When he was sleeping, I'd go there, I'd put on new pants, I'd put the wallet back in his pockets, put the belt back on for him. He never even knew we were changing them, you know. But you know, it's just you know, you learn to adapt with they, as they do, you know. Exactly. Basically routine. You got to simplify, like you said. That's why I call call that chapter the closet of simplicity because it's keep their clothing simple. To me, like I said, the mornings are very vital to keep things as frustrating free. You don't want them to start off on the wrong foot, the wrong side of the bed, or whatever. You just keep things simple. In, in so you have you have a chapter in here called "Reflections of Alzheimer's" and it's trouble with mirrors. Can you explain to people what you mean by that? I get to the point where I couldn't figure out what was going on with my dad there for a while, and every time he wanted to take go into the bathroom to urinate, me call me in. He goes, "Gary, come here." And I thought he was like he was afraid of falling, losing his balance. So I always kept my hand on his back while he was peeing, 
You know, basically, you know, I could have put an X on the floor where he wanted. Well, this went through to the point where I realized there was a full-length mirror right behind me. He didn't like that stranger standing behind him watching him go to the bathroom. Then I realized that he wouldn't shave in the bathroom anymore. He only wanted to shave at the kitchen sink. And he was looking at the window, kitchen window like using it as a mirror. Well, my mirrors aren't that, my windows aren't that clean. But, I mean, it just gets to the point. I started putting two to two together. He just didn't like looking at these people. He was afraid of who was the person, a stranger in their house. So I ended up covering the mirrors and removing them. You know, get to the point where I had him at the kitchen table, and I just slept one little cosmetic mirror, round cosmetic mirror for him to shave when he needed it, stuff like that. And then, of course, I get to the point where I had to shave him. But um, a lot of people, they get up. My dad would be in the at night. He'd go to bed, and he's like, Dad, he goes, what, what, do I have school in the morning? So he's thinking in his mind, he's back in some time of his childhood. And he'd wake up in the morning, mm-hmm. now there's an 85-year-old man standing in the mirror. I mean, that's, you know, like yeah, I said, you want to keep that? their morning yeah. smooth. You know, so, I mean, mirrors can be different. Some people actually become friends with the people in the mirror. I mean, everyone's different, but uh, mirrors can cause a big problem. It took me a little while to figure out what was going on, but sure enough, man, that's, that's what it was. He didn't like that guy in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. So it's something to think so, about. I mean, sometimes, um, like I said, everyone responds differently, but it could be it could be causing a problem. You also have a, a chapter on hoarding called What Happened to It? Um, and I know my mom was a hoarder. I mean, every time she would go to the dining room, I mean, she was taking the butter packets and the jelly packets and the sugar packets. Or the so, I mean, it was just, it was amazing what you would find in her purse. Um, right. You know, and, you know, you go out to a restaurant and it's like, no, the salt and pepper really has to stay here. We can't take that with us. And um, But it was, I don't know where that came from, you know, but it was like it's there, so it's there for the taking type it, thing. Um, it can be harmless in a way, depending on what they're taking, but all of a sudden they start taking uh, important pieces of paper or something like that. I mean, it's, uh, I hate to say it, but you almost have to have a lockdown drawer in the house or some place to keep things where, you know, me and my father being in the book business, if you had a book and it disappeared for a minute, I guarantee you it became part of his collection. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it was just, uh, but that was his thing on not dealing it. But the same thing. And then, then of course, then they're accusing you of stealing everything. I mean, that's it's common, and it's that's that's a tough one because you know you're working so hard, you're trying to do everything for them, and now that they're actually calling you a thief, uh, it gets a little personal. But you gotta just keep telling yourself it's the disease, you know. Yeah, it's it's yeah. not meant as a personal attack. Um, right. I have to just make a comment. There was someone who had called in earlier, but they didn't raise their hand, so I didn't grab the call. I thought they were just kind of listening and not ready, and I see that they dropped away. So if you are listening out there and you want to ask a question, call in to 714-364-4757, and then you have to push 1 to raise your hand, and then I'll know that you actually want to um, join our conversation, Okay. Sounds good. Um, let's look at what else, because you, you just have so many cool things. Now, you have one on uh, role-playing, adapting to character. What do you mean by that? you got to play the role sometimes. I know if they don't, uh, it gets to a point where you might have five names in one day. I mean, don't tell you, say, hey, listen, Mom, this is, it's me. Why, why don't you recognize me? Just go to whoever you are. If you're son, your name's Susan, you're Susan for that hour. I mean, just just go with it. You know, I mean, it's uh, it gets pretty bad on a lot of things. My my father was the oldest of 17 kids, a okay, large mm-hmm. family, I mean, you know. And he always would ask for his brother, Alfie, who was the second oldest. Well, Alfie had died right after World War II. He made it through the war, but he died shortly after that. So 
So if you even mentioned to him that that Alfie's been gone for 50, 60 years, you know, he'd be like, he would get so upset. He'd be like, what kind of family are you? You didn't even tell me about the funeral? So just go with mm-hmm. the role. Play with the role. I was just like, oh, Alfie just left. He said something about he'd be back in the morning. He said, oh, okay. I mean, don't just, you know, therapeutic lies. Some people call them fiblets. I mean, you know, don't feel bad about not telling the truth to him because you got to do what's better for both of you. I mean, that's the bottom line. I had one woman get very upset at me because I told her, no, just you know, go with a lie. She goes, you're telling me to lie to my husband? I'm like, yes. <laughs> Therapeutically lies, you know, little white lies, you know. Playing the role, I yeah. mean, like I said, my dad thought I was his father the whole time. I And I used that to my advantage. I mean, he'd be like, Dad, do I got to take these pills? And I was like, oh, yes, and don't make me get your mother involved. But see, that worked. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I used it. I used it all the way to the end. I mean, you know. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I know I spoke to a group, and I said, you know, my mom to this day doesn't know that my brother's divorced or that I'm divorced. And, and somebody asked me afterwards, you know, why why didn't you tell them? that you're divorced and I said well I said because it'll ruin her day she loved my husband my husband was a great guy um still is and you know we're good friends but she would not I I couldn't explain to her what happened or it would just be that word divorce and she would I know she would grab a hold of it and it would just be so so upsetting to her now we've got a caller on the line so I'm going to pull them in here so just a second Gary and we'll see See what happens here. Hello. Hi. Is this the caller? This is, yes. This Hi. is Sandy from Pennsylvania. Hi, and Sandy from Pennsylvania. Do you have a question or a comment for us? Yes. I'm I'm wondering if you experienced any loss of friendship due to your experience taking care of your father. Huh. All all the time, on it. Lost many friends on the deal on it. But I got to tell you something. That's nothing to worry about because you, as you go through, like I said, it's going to be a life-changing thing. But in the end, when it's all over, uh, some of them might come back. The true friends will come back to you and on the deal on it. But yeah, your social life it dwindles and dwindles down, and it's common. It's nothing you're doing. I mean, so don't take it personally. But I mean, uh, everybody experiences it. You know, you know, your friends call you up and say, hey, you know, how about going to a movie? And you deny it and you say. You know, I just can't, and then eventually they just stop calling, and that's, you know, that's that's what happens. But yes, I did. I, yeah. I lost a lost a lot of friendship throughout the deal, but I made a lot of good new ones. More, maybe better, more I, new I ones than I, I lost. Like, I would like to add to that, though. I think we have to be careful because it is. I would I would disagree a little bit with what Gary's saying. I think part of it is, is our choice in terms of losing friendships, because if they're calling all the time and we're constantly saying no, um, then they don't know what else to do for us. And so we have to either give them a different alternative of things that we can do together that allows you to still care for your person, or you need to decide, you know what, I need a break, and it's perfectly okay for me to take a break and be able to find someone to give you respite so that you can go with your friends. I made that mistake myself where I was like, nope, I'm too busy. I, you know, I just, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And I was lucky my girlfriends didn't give up on me. And then I finally was, you know, said, okay, okay, to get you off my back, after like three months of them asking me, I said, I'll, I can meet for coffee for 15 minutes. That's all I can do. And then I, I melted when I got there because I, I didn't realize how much I missed them. 
and how much they filled my soul. And so then after that session, you know, of meeting, and it was like a therapy session, we, I ended up staying for two hours because I, I realized how much I needed it. And I worked in every two hours that this, I need this in order to do what I'm doing. I can't keep giving and giving and giving and depleting myself. And so some of that I think we have to take um, some of the responsibility of self-care. And I think that that's something as a society that we don't do. And I don't know what your particular situation is. Is there a way for you to be able to break away from who you're caring for? I I was a caregiver. I'm I'm now an advocate. I'm a member of Memory People that Rick started. And mm-hmm. um my situation with my mother, I had a, a friend in particular who wanted me to go out of state, and I was very reluctant to do anything like that and therefore lost the friendship. Um mm-hmm. Anytime I was away from my mother, I had the cell phone in my hand and it was set on vibrate or to ring because I I wanted to be there for her. She was my top priority. Yeah, and those are choices I think that are fine to make and it it is sad when people fall away like that. Um, Have you tried to reconnect with that person? No, I I have not. Okay, because... That's something that you might do, and you you may find by reaching out that, you know what, it's not a relationship that you care to have anymore, um, that it served its purpose, or it might, like Gary said, it might reignite. Um, But they don't know maybe how things have changed with you, or again, a lot of times I think people don't know how to help us. Um, And we don't always know how to tell them how to help us, because we don't know either. This is all new, so I think it's great that you called in and even asked the question because many people struggle with this and you know um, talking being part of groups like Rick's group uh, memory people I think is a wonderful facet Um, reading books like Gary has written um, you know we just we need more awareness we need more permission to discuss what it's really like and what um, what truly we're struggling with or what's working well. So I, I thank you for your question. Did you have anything else you wanted to ask? No, I appreciate everything you're doing, and I hope people will read the book and also join Memory People. They can get to it through Facebook. Yep, it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful group. That's how Well, that's how I've met everybody on this call, <laughs> through Rick Phelps, so... Rick's doing some pretty pretty wonderful things, that's for sure. Well, thank you so much for your call. Thank you. We appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for calling. Okay, too. bye now. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, you're right, Lori, on the far as um, you, you, you really, it's up to you to keep your friendship going. And if I could have done things over, I would have worked a little harder on that. But uh, like I said, the general public doesn't understand a lot of uh, how, what it actually is to become a caregiver and the sacrifices that you that you actually make. No, nope. so no, we don't. You make an amount of sacrifices to do this, but I wouldn't change anything in for it. Like you know, as far as family goes and your loved one, you can do what you got to do. That's how I feel. Yeah, I think Rick Rick wanted to make a comment. Rick, are you there? Yeah, Lori, I want to. Uh, this is a very emotional show for me, obviously, and I try to try to get through this. But uh, Gary LeBlanc, I I just 
I've been fighting this disease for about 15 months every day, 24-7. I've spoke at many venues, Alzheimer venues, and at Washington, D.C., and the Columbus State House, and all that stuff. And out of the hundreds of people I've met, probably thousands, I can count on one hand, or maybe two, the people that actually gets this disease. And, and Gary LeBlanc is one of them. And uh, when I get a chance to talk with Gary, or just to listen to Gary, um, it, it brings so much joy to me because he he gets it. He understands. He uh, he explains what I can no longer explain. <laughs> um, there's just so much uh, information in Gary's book I can no longer read. So of course, Phyllis June read it to me, <laughs> which was wonderful and. Uh, I just enjoyed it immensely, and, and we use it now as a reference book because any chapter in that book will help you. It doesn't matter if it's the first chapter or the last chapter. I, uh, I cannot stress enough, any, anybody can write a book on caregiving, but if you haven't walked the walk, you know, it, it's just another book. And Gary's book is absolutely fantastic. Thank you. It is. I, I agree with you very much. It It is a resource book because it speaks the general public's language. And it, you know, one of the things I know when I was going through this earlier on was it's like, can anybody just talk my language? Can anybody just tell me how to live with this disease? How do, how do you make peace with it? And, you know, so that both sides are feeling fulfilled and that you don't lose your relationship and and this book really has such great substance to it and you know these lessons that Gary shares are are very they're very simple but they're everyday issues that that as caregivers we struggle with and i also i, I also love and it, we didn't really put this in here but he has quotes and poems and stuff that are just inspirational pieces um, that I think are wonderful, too, because, you know, sometimes we get down in the dumps and you just need to hear some calming words, um, even though you've now learned maybe different techniques to deal with something. Sometimes it's just nice to have a prayer or have a, a quote that just lifts you up and carries you through um, the whole process there. So, yeah, like it, is, about it the is. Poems is that those were all donated to me by the Sunshine Poet Society out of Crystal River, Florida. So that was uh, that was a very nice uh, donation for that for the book on that. I want to thank those people. Oh, very cool, very cool. Now you have a section in here on music therapy too. What's your thoughts on music therapy? It's amazing. <laughs> It's amazing how they they lose they might even totally lose their language and only speak one or two word sentences, but yet a song comes on and they can sing that word like they wrote it. I mean, so there's mm-hmm. some part of that uh, of the music or something that stays in a different part of the of the temporal lobe that just just blows me away. I mean, my dad. I mean, we'd put the Lawrence Welch show on, he'd be singing these words like you know, like they were yesterday. And uh, so I mean, so every th- I started recording the show. You know, put a DVD in for him and stuff like that. Like I said, you got to become part speech therapist. So if you can get them to at least sing, 
I mean, it's. Uh, I was going to one support group a while back ago with this one woman. <laughs> she was pretty far advanced, and in the beginning of the meeting, she would stand up and say, God bless America to everybody. And she was in her 80s. I mean, she could do this, too. She's in her very, very late stages now. But it was amazing how she could just do this. I mean, but yet she couldn't, couldn't even hold a conversation anymore. So, I well, mean, it's, there's something about it that's actually unbelievable. I mean, so... If, if it calms yeah. them and you get that type of get, get, take them away from their anxiety and the depression, what more can you say? Well, and it really and also, builds them, gets them participating. You know, it takes away that isolation. I know with my mom. I mean, she just you can just see it in her eyes. You can see it in her body language, her smile, her. You know, she's just so happy, and right. it's both. So, simple to be able to add music into one's life and i think we take again for granted the power of music the emotion that's attached to songs i mean i, I don't know about right the rest at your of you but you got a yeah. cd player right in your house it's right at your fingertips you can use it and you know and as far as art goes there's people that when they start doing watercoloring and also they can they never couldn't even draw stick people before and also they're getting actually pretty good at that i think a lot of it's because they're no longer accredited of themselves you know they just they don't it doesn't bother them if they're bad or good and they they go through it but i mean the whole thing is to keep their anxiety down and the the stress and all that and if this works for them man just stay with it Yep, the ego has gone, and um, you know it's kind of like freedom has landed because it's it's okay. You don't worry about the judgment of others and and things. It's it's a it's a beautiful beautiful thing. You also talk about idle hands activities for people with Alzheimer's disease. Can you right. can you explain that a little bit more? Uh, they say idle hands are the devil's toys, you know, and uh, this gets true. You know, I mean. When you basically photo albums, stuff like that, photo albums to me was is a fantastic tool, and I would leave them, leave them on my kitchen table all the time. They'd be right there. So as soon as he was done eating dinner or something, I'd slide the album right in front of him. I know I'm saying it idle hands, but now he's turning the pages. He's every day he'd be pointing at a picture of me, and one day the next day he'd have a totally different story on the same picture. But it doesn't matter, you know anything. I mean, if they're into my dad played solitaire, that was his big thing for hours and hours and hours. But you know what? That was fantastic for me. At least, you know, I could mow in the earlier stages. I could at least mow the lawn outside. I'd go by the kitchen window just to make sure he was still at the table playing cards. But he kept them in this little bubble. And actually, he said that to me one day. He had a moment of clarity. He said, you know, when I'm playing cards, it's like I got my little safety bubble over me. Nothing seems to bother me. And he, that came right out of his mouth. I mean, so I mean, that, that tells you me right there. It's like little things. Just Google Alzheimer's activities online, and I got to tell you, you'd be amazed at what pops up. I mean, this, you know, what am I going to do with them now? But you know, you got to keep them, keep them occupied, keep them going. Don't let them just sit there well, and whittle away. You know. Yeah, you so. can go to Alzheimer's Disease International, and Dr. Richard Taylor and Laura Bromley have um, developed this. Uh, what's it called? Um, I'm trying to think. There's there's a name of it. And it's a it's a bubble. If you go to their site, I, I want to say while well, I st- it's not while well, I still can because that's that's Rick's thing. Um, but the, if you scroll down, you'll see these bubbles in kind of a you know uh, cartoon language thing. And if you click on that, there's all kinds of activities there. I think it's Speak Up Stand Out is what it's what it's called there. And they are having people all around the world. Um, write in with different types of activities that have worked and have been really helpful. And there's just it's, it's a huge sharing tool 
that they're um, developing there, which is pretty cool. But, yeah, there's through activity coordinators, there's all kinds of resources out there if you can Google, um, you know, or just thinking of, of simple things that they used to like to do or just try new things. Another thing I would do yeah. with my dad, I'd always leave the game show channel on during the day. And you'd be sitting there playing in solitary cars and the game show. These questions would be randomly going through the air from the television, from the show. And all of a sudden, he'd be like, he'd be yelling out the answers. Well, that, to me, that's, you know, you use it or lose it. You've got to keep that brain functioning and going with it, you know, and stuff like that. Exactly. Little things you can do that just uh, use it or lose it, like I said. You've got to keep them occupied. If they like crossword puzzles, let them do it as long as they can. If they like to knit, let them knit a, a scarf a mile long. I mean, it's mm-hmm. uh, keep them... It, it'll keep you uh, everything better for both of you. Like I said, I mean, they get to a point where they start shadowing you, you know, and walking around the house, and that gets upsetting. I mean, you can't. I couldn't take a step back without knowing my dad was a foot behind me. I could feel him breathing on the back of my neck. But I mean, so mm-hmm. when you know at the time of day this starts happening, that's when you give them the activity. When you got sundowning coming in, you know it's coming. That's when you give them the photo album. You know sundown is coming in an hour. If there are people with sundown syndrome, be proactive about it. Get them, get them ready. That's where activities come in place for you. Exactly. Now, it looks like we have another caller on the line, and I'm just going to say if you have a question or a comment, just push one so I know that you want to actively ask a question. Otherwise, I won't pull you into the conversation there. Now, Gary, I'm going to have you go over um, just one more thing, and then I want to get into um, Rick's announcement and and big surprise there. Um, Can you give us some tips for you have visiting day, you know, visiting people who are um, maybe placed in an assisted living or a nursing home? Or well, visiting in in your own home. Make a plan when you go. I mean, like I said, the photo album. If you're going to visit them in a facility, bring the photo album with you, so you have something that can you know inspire conversation as you're there. You know, I mean, it's uh, and if they don't know who you are, that's <laughs> don't let that get to you. I mean, I got to tell you, sometimes you walk in, they don't know your name, but you can turn around and walk out the door and come back. They're going to be, where have you been? I've been waiting for you all day. You know, I always mm-hmm. believe that. It's not that they forget who you are; they just can't retrieve you. You're always inside of them, so don't make you don't don't ever think that you're gone. And that's what happens to a lot of people once they get placed: is that they, people start thinking it doesn't matter if I go anymore. They don't know who I am. They don't even know if I'm there. Well, that's not true. I mean, exactly. human nature. I mean, it needs to be touched and holded and rubbed on the back and patted on the back and just go. It doesn't matter if they don't know you're doing your job, and you can't just drop these people off in a facility without being an advocate for them. Somebody has to be there to answer their questions and make sure they're, everything's happening the way it's supposed to be. Okay. We've got a couple more callers here, so I'm going to just pull them into the line here. And can you tell us who you are? Hello? From a 352 number. Oh, okay. Hello. My name is Hi. Holly. Hi. Hi, Holly. I'm listening with fascination to this program and I'm just so appreciative of this book. Um, having worked in healthcare for many, many years, I also worked uh, with Alzheimer's in an Alzheimer's group home setting and uh, for a decade uh, there was never a book like this, Staying Afloat in a Sea of Forgetfulness, that was such a day in and day out um, assistance uh, for a person like me that would deal with someone that I just don't, I didn't know. And one of the things, one of the many things that he says, Gary says, um, that's so important is to ha- be an advocate for your loved one. If indeed they're in a, a um, even if it's just a day 
care or whatever they elder care daily thing. You need, they need somebody there to tell the caregivers about them before they had Alzheimer's, what their interests were, what they were like, what their life was like, even the names sometimes of, of their maybe um, deceased spouse so that you could refer to that person as having uh, been in touch because when they have sundowners, like Gary was talking about, um, do prepare ahead of time because you know that time of day is going to come. They're going to want to go home, and you're going to want to uh, creatively assure them that so uh, this Bill, husband Bill called and said the weather's too bad. You really should, you know, remain here for the evening. And then you assist them and say, look, I have this beautiful room for you. And, and oh, thank you so much. And just assure them they're safe and that they're loved and cared about. And as he said, you know, know them as people. And if they were interested in a particular kind of music, always use music as um, an inroad to their psyche and uh, give them a lot of peace with that. Um, they do remember prayers. It's amazing when they won't know what happened five minutes ago, and then you would say a, a famous prayer like a, the Lord's Prayer or something. A lot of them would still know all the words, and even a simple song uh, like uh, from their childhood, they will remember the words to that as well. So music... Taking old magazines was one of my favorite things with, like, an old Life magazine. And Gary having a bookstore, he has old Life magazines and things. That people can visit his store and, and get some of these tools. Um, bring a old Life magazine, have them sit there and turn the pages with you or even without you. And they'll enjoy looking at the ads because it takes them back to a time that they do remember. And it gives Wonderful. them comfort. Well, thank so you for I, calling in, Hal. Yes, and I just want to encourage him and thank him for all of his hard work and for this wonderful book and encourage people to buy it and have it, not only for themselves but for people around them. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Holly. I'm going to go ahead and take the next call here. I appreciate thank you taking you. the time to call in today. Thanks. Thank Bye-bye. you, Gary. Bye. Okay, now we've got a caller from 253. And who am I speaking to? Hi, Lori. It's Leanne. Leanne oh, hi, Kate. Leanne. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Not too bad. Did you have a question or a comment? Or? I, I did. I had a question. Um, Gary, I just wanted to ask you um, what your thoughts are about um, – I'm also a member at, at Memory People, and um, we see a lot of people come on there who struggle with family members that are in denial of the disease of uh, when they see their loved one, they don't look sick. Um, when they're with them for even 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, they don't even really act like something's wrong. And, Gary, I was just wondering, you know, what your thoughts are about that and how to handle yeah, that. Yeah, this is so common. I mean, it's it's almost like the biggest complaint I have, that, you know, you're not getting any help from family members. They don't believe anything's happening. One thing, if you could, try to get them to go to a support group with you or to the doctor with you. Sometimes it just comes out so much louder if they're hearing it from somebody else and not their own sibling that they're hearing it from. And when it comes uh, from a stranger, yeah. sometimes they listen twice as much as they do from you. But um, right. th this is something that happens. One of the problems is that people with the disease can hold themselves together so good for 20 minutes, and then but they don't realize that when the time they're in the car before they're even out of the driveway, the, my dad would be like, who the heck were those people? What were they trying to sell us? I mean, mm. I mean so it's, you know. Yeah. Denial is a major, major problem. This is where awareness comes in. But like I said, with family members, sometimes they need to hear it from an, a stranger. 
That's uh, you know, sometimes I just don't want to believe their brother or their, you know, their their uncle is like you. you my, that can't be true. My brother can't be that bad off. I just talked to him. But if they hear it from somebody else, or if you bring them to a meeting where they see exactly what's going on in the Alzheimer's world, sometimes it comes across a lot louder. Well, That's and again, point. I think people don't, or, you know, this. Or let me just finish this. Have them sit with them for 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. usually changes it's, their mind pretty quick. I think there's this impression that, you know, once you hit a stage, then you have to be like that 24-7. And none of us are like that. Our moods change. You know, throughout the day, we can be in a good mood and a bad mood. We can be in a talkative one. We can be in a recluse one. And that doesn't change when you get the disease. You still have... Right, and right now, with so the early onset, more and more, more and more people are coming down with the early onset, and they just can't believe that how can he have Alzheimer's disease in his 50s. Well, i got to tell you, this early onset is becoming more and more common. It's getting scary. Well, and with the early diagnosis, we're going to see much more of it because they're looking for it now, where before right. they weren't. Thank and it's so much okay. harder for people to accept it. Exactly. It's, it's, I was just saying it's so much harder, for, yeah, for family members or, or loved ones, anybody, to accept it because they they can still talk to you and they look perfectly healthy and you just it's hard to understand and accept it. Yeah, and Alzheimer's is still, still stuck in everybody's mind that it's an Alzheimer's disease, and this is the farthest yes. thing from the truth. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's why it's good we're talking today and trying to, you know, change that that myth about the disease and change the, the stigmas and stuff that are attached to it because, I mean, we just don't know who's going to get it next. I mean, right. it could happen awareness to is, any of us. It really boils down to we need more awareness about every, all of it. Exactly. I mean. It, it, it well, is coming. You I mean, so you much. see, you hear more and more about the disease. The awareness is getting better, but I mean, it needs us got a long ways to go. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks, Gary. Well, thank you for calling in, Leanne. And um, I think what we're going to do is let Rick tell us about his big surprise here. Rick, you still with us? Oh yeah, I'm still here. I don't know how much of a surprise it's going to be. People kind of piece things together, and I'm, I'm hard pressed to keep a secret, but. Uh, <laughs> Excuse me. Everybody knows or should know by now that I'm in the process of uh, writing a book, and I've talked to probably four different writers in the past. And when you do that, you sort of have to interview people because you know it, it's going to be a book of uh, my life story, uh, the struggles with this disease, the daily things I go through, what Phyllis Jean goes through, and things like that, how I was diagnosed, and, and all that stuff. Well, it's just got to be the right person. I met a lot of people on Memory People, and Gary LeBlanc was one of them. And uh, just by listening to him the last hour, if anybody can't tell, uh, he's going to be my writer because uh, I couldn't I couldn't have a better a better guy to do this. He he has walked the walk. He knows everything there is to know about caregiving. Um, we we just meld together, and uh, this is going to be there, just like I said. There's been many books wrote about Alzheimer's. But I don't know very many that's been wrote about the patient, from the patient, and and especially being wrote from a caregiver. <laughs> so this is a this is a big thing, and and I know it's gonna it's gonna bring a lot of awareness, and that's what it's all about. And I just uh, can't be happier to let people know that uh, me and Gary is going to be working together on this feverishly, and uh, we're going to get her done. Yeah, I'm going to start it in about. About three weeks, I'm going to start on Rick's project, and I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's uh, going to be a good project, I believe. 
Wonderful. Now, is this going to be, Rick, is this going to be just your story, or is it going to be, is Phyllis June's voice going to be in the book as well, your wife? Well, I, I believe I can't really tell a story without her being in it, you know, because it's a, it's a family thing. Um, we're going to start uh, with the diagnosis, and maybe a few months before that, uh, things leading up to it, you know, how you notice things are going on. I'm going to mention early detection is very important. But it's going to be from the, from the patient's point of view, you know, how I look at things, how people treat me now, and, and how I have to go about my daily routine, and, and just things that people may not uh, be able to express that have this disease. And that's why we're going to title it While I Still Can, because that's exactly why I want to do this, While I Still Can. And uh, I think I think it's going to be a good collaboration between us two, and uh, I'm just looking forward to working with Gary. And uh, he's very patient. <laughs> Thank God he's a caregiver because he knows exactly what I'm going through, and he tells me all the time, just just relax, Rick. We'll get it. We'll get it. We'll take our time, and we'll get through this. So he, we'll he, knows. he knows exactly what he's talking about. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm yep. very excited about it because it's going to be on the early onset Alzheimer's, and that's something that really needs to have awareness brought to it. So that's uh, that's one thing I'm very happy about doing this project. Have you guys kind of figured out your format for the book? Is it going to be? Um, and again, if you don't want to talk about this stuff or give away what you're doing, I, I can appreciate that as well. Um, but is it going to be a book kind of like you know, staying afloat in the sea of forgetfulness, where you can read? A chapter, you know, and or you can sit down and read the whole thing and use it as a resource book, or is that something it, you'll have to decide once you kind of get into the project more? My feelings on it is try to keep it in the same tone as, uh, you know, mm -hmm. as far as as um, you know, caregiver friendly or patient friendly in this matter. I'm doing it, but uh, it won't be as much as a resource book. Let's chapter chapter on it. It's going to be a a story through it, and then maybe towards the end we'll do more of a resource to it on it. Uh, we're still working on it. Like I said, it's, everything's up on the air on it still. Uh, we're really going to dig into it here within the within the next month. So um, we're looking then, at it sometime sometime early next year it should be released. Okay, and so with the book, is it going to be, and again, I don't know if you've determined this because a lot of times you can't until you've kind of pulled it all together, um, but is it going to be for caregivers or is it going to be for people who maybe have gotten early diagnosis, um, professionals, or all of the above? I believe we're looking to do both, all of the okay. above. How about you, Rick? Is all the above and then everybody included because you don't have to be a patient or a caregiver to know about this disease. That's the problem with this disease is the ignorance of it. Um, I'm not calling people ignorant. I'm just saying there's a lot of people, and I'd say about 80% of the people that I know of that are ignorant of the Alzheimer's disease, and we're going to tackle that and explain what a patient goes through through a caregiver's eyes. You know, it's uh, it's going to be different. It's going to be different, but it's going to be very. Uh, it's going to be an easy read. It's not going to be a long book because, like Gary said, you know, people don't have time to sit down and read a novel if you're dealing with this. You know. So um, mm -hmm. it, it's going to be it's going to be a good. Uh, I, I can't wait to get going on. Yeah, I think it's going to well, help I'm a excited. lot of people. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about it. I know you know with your videos have helped so many people and memory people has just been so amazing what you've done you know with the face group book there and maybe Rick if you can just um, tell because we may have people listening who don't really know about memory people can you tell them how Memory People started, what it is, and how can they join? Sure, Memory People, uh, 
memory people started back uh, last year. I believe it was Thanksgiving Day, if I'm not mistaken. I, I've been on several sites, message boards, that deals with Alzheimer's, and I was just having trouble getting answers to my questions because you would ask a question, it might be three hours or three days before you get a response. So I thought, well, there's millions of people in the Facebook. That's what needs to be done. So I sat down and I started up a site, a closed site, meaning you have to join to be in this site. Uh, anything that's posted on memory people can only be seen by members. That's very important because what we discuss there is very private and very personal. So it's a closed site. And all you have to do, if you if you belong to Facebook, just type in memory people in your search engine, and it'll take you right to our site and click on a little icon there that says ask to join, and uh, we turn down no one. We have patients, caregivers, advocates, family members, uh, just anybody that's interested in this walk that we're doing together. It's uh, We started out with me. We added five people right away, and now everybody knows we're up to, I think, I don't want to quote, but I think we're close to 1,400 members now all over the United States and all over the world. We, uh, we're adding about approximately 100 people a week. So it, in the last nine months or whatever it's been, it's, it's growing with leaps and bounds. And everyone there has the same thing in common, to bring awareness and support to this disease because that's what needs to be done. And uh, we're doing both, and I might be prejudiced, but I think we do it better than anybody else on the Internet. Well, can you tell people about your subgroups? Because I think that's one of the really interesting things about your group is you have kind of the main group, but then you've you've developed these little subcultures um, because that's what people wanted. And, and I think that that is such a neat thing, that you have listened to what it is that people want. So can you tell people a little bit about the subgroups that you have? Sure, I'm glad you mentioned that, Lori. Um, we have about, and don't quote me on this because of my memory, but I think it's close to 10, 10 different what we call spin-off sites. One of them is Memory People 2, and that's a very laid-back site. It's a place that people go, and they enjoy just talking to each other, telling jokes. We have a game night every Saturday night at 5 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, and all it is is just a bunch of people from all over the world getting on Memory People 2 and having a good time. Everybody's invited except Mr. Alzheimer's. We don't talk about Alzheimer's on Memory People, too. Then we have a spinoff called Memory People Prayer Chain, and that's pretty uh, self-explanatory. We have uh, Memory People Recipes that has just taken off immensely. Uh, people get on there, the members get on there, and they post their favorite recipes. And one of my favorite members, Harry Urban, he, uh, he made a cookbook up for uh, Memory People, and it's just absolutely outstanding. And I think what we're going to do is uh, try to market this cookbook, and uh, the proceeds, of course, will go to memory people. And uh, let's see, there's memory people recipes and uh, memory people broad squad. That's for the ladies, ladies only. <laughs> Nobody's allowed in there unless you're female because we all know ladies have to have a place to vent. Oh, Lord, <laughs> I don't know. You got me on a spot here. You know, there's several. I just I can't. Oh, the resource one. Thank you, Gary. They have a Memory People Resources, and that's a site where people post articles and resources of Alzheimer's. Um, one of our, our very good members, Dick and Gary, both uh, post a lot of things and resources that are absolutely essential for people to read that are going through this disease as a caregiver or as a patient. 
Now, I struggle with that a lot because some of them are awful long posts, and, and I have to wait till Phyllis gets home to, to explain to me what's going on. But I'm, I'm telling you, it's an absolutely uh, – it's, it's a very good uh, spin-off site, uh, Memory People Resources. So just, uh, yeah, get on Memory People, and uh, we welcome everybody with open arms. You're a stranger there but once, and, and uh, I'm you, it, it's like one big family. And, and I tell people this all the time. I, I, I thank them for telling me, you know, for starting up this site, but, but here's, here's the deal. <laughs> if it wasn't for the other 13 or 1,400 members there, I'd be sitting there talking to myself. It's the it's the members that makes that site what it is. It's not about Rick Phelps, you know. Memory people is bigger than one person or one idea. It's uh, it's grown and it's uh, someday. I'm hoping with the up and coming book and my videos that we're going to be uh, releasing here shortly, that it's going to be a household name because we truly are changing lives one person at a time. Now we don't cure this disease and we don't claim to do that. But we help, we support people, and we bring awareness, and, and that's the most important thing that we can do. Wonderful. Well, I think I think that is just fantastic. It's uh, it's how we all connected, uh, and so many others. It's just been a fabulous, fabulous site. It connected me with Norms to bring over the Memory Cafe to the from the UK to the US. So there's there's big big things. Um, just fabulous connections happening on there twenty four seven which is is so neat and I think one thing that you didn't really mention was that you know conversations happen in real time because there's always somebody on the site you know, because you're that's one of the most important things I started to mention that and I got off track, but it is the most important thing because somebody's there twenty four seven I get up at three o'clock in the morning most mornings because of my sleepless nights. And, and I talk to people over in the UK, Pauline, or, or whoever might be on at that time. There's always someone there. If you ask a question or if you have a problem, now we don't profess to have all the answers, but we certainly try. And uh, you're not going to wait 30 minutes or an hour to get an answer because it just doesn't happen. Everything is in real time there. And, and I must say it's, it's a very secure site. We take that very, very seriously because in the internet and I have 10 or 12 administrators that monitor the post constantly so uh, we watch what is being posted very very closely mm-hmm. I honestly well, gotta say, yeah, I, think it's, it's, I, I think it's the best online support group in the country for, and, or better I mean it's, it's really uh, Rick's done a great job <gasps> that. very impressive Wonderful. So, um, Alan Arnett is going to be joining us here probably in another uh, 10 minutes or so. Um, But I just wanted to um, get back to um, the book again a little bit. I got us off track. Is there anything more that you want to say about your your upcoming book, Rick? Well, I'm real excited about it, like I said. And uh, I've, I've seen a lot of books on the shelves about Alzheimer's and caregiving and things like that. But there's not too many books that's going to be uh, uh, delivered like this one is from a patient's point of view. I keep stressing that, but uh, I've been to many neurologists and many doctors, and I can tell you this. I know more than any of them knows about Alzheimer's. (laughs) Now, when it comes medically, obviously, they know more than I do because I'm not a doctor. But me being the patient, they just sit there in awe when I tell them some things because my general practitioner, he he just – he just can't. He still can't believe it. You know, I'm 57 or eight. I don't know. I think I'm 57, and and he, uh, 
you know, he's at the attitude, he's a general practitioner, that you've got to be 70 or 80 years old to have this disease, and it's just not so. So I've opened his eyes and, and many other people just, uh, just by listening. And, and it's not that I have all the answers. It's just that I'm a patient. And uh, everything I say is, is not wrong in my mind because that's how my mind works. You know, it's not always right, but it's never wrong to me because that's how it works with me. So it, it's a very exciting project, and uh, I can't thank Gary enough for being on board with this, and uh, it's, it's going to be a good thing. Well, I, I think it's a nice fit, the two of you working together. I am really, really excited about this. I think it's going to be a very powerful book well written and i think it's going to be really well received as well so gary anything else you wanted to add on on the upcoming book project do you guys have a time frame in terms of when you think this will be done or um i hate to come up with a time and deal but early next year i'm i'm looking like probably march i think by the time the copyright and everything and the publishing is all done on it so like i said i'm going to get started pretty heavy on it in the next three weeks or so so once I that's start, I mean, that's just, I'm trying, right now I've been working hard to get as many articles ahead of myself in my column and everything, so once I start, I don't have to go back and forth and back and forth. It's been, uh, you know, so once we get going, we'll get going on it. Okay, and, well, that's, um, that's wonderful. We'll have you guys back on to, to get the update on that. So with your book right now, Gary, how do people get a hold of you to, to get the book? Where can they get it? Oh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the online uh, dealers pretty much carrying it. Okay. It's being very well received. Again. I got to say, I'm very happy with the way uh, the reviews and everything on it. It's been uh, all I keep hearing is can't put it down. <laughs> so I'll get number one thing yeah. I hear. So makes me very happy doing that. So. Good. And again, the title is "Staying Afloat in a Sea of Forgetfulness: Common yeah. Sense Caregiving," and it's the expanded edition. Um, by Gary Joseph LeBlanc, and you can get that, as he said, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And do you have a, a website at all, or is it just best for them to go directly yeah, you online? Yeah, can go to uh, stayinafloatbook.com. Stayinafloatbook.com. Okay, wonderful. And then are you looking at taking on any other projects? Is that something that... Um, you're open to, or are you? After I get Rick's gonna... done, uh, you know, one, once I got on one project, that's it. It takes everything I, you know, I commit to one thing, and then we go from there. But yeah, definitely will be even more projects coming up. I'm not done yet. Okay. Okay. Well, wonderful. Well, that's that's great. And um, like Gary, I said, the column you... is still ongoing. I've been writing the column for three years, and I have no intention of giving that up. I mean, that's uh, my columns. I truly believe it's helped a lot of people. I get emails weekly. I mean, after three years of writing on the same subject, I'm like, what am I going to write about next? Well, I'm, I just basically feed off my readers. I get emails weekly, and I'm like, oh, there you go. There's another subject. So it's uh, the column's been very well received. So. Now, is that something that people can access online, or do you have to be in Florida and order the paper and get it to your no, door? No, uh, TBO, which stands for Tampa Bay Online, uh, they, they post it every week. Uh, I said I write for Hernando today and uh, the Tampa Tribune. And they're both are both owned by the same publisher. They're they're sister companies, and uh, they both post it. So sometimes it's two posts a week. Sometimes it's one post a week on it. Um, anybody who's willing to, who wants me to put them on my mailing list, they can email me at us41books.com, and um, no, us41books at bellsouth.net. I'm sorry, and I'll be more than happy to okay, put them on you, the mailing list. Can you say that a little slower for people? Yep. 
US41 books at bellsouth.net. That's my email address, and I'll be more than happy to mail you the column weekly. Okay. Or you can always hook up with Gary on Memory People because he's a member too. If you go to Facebook and then just put in the search Memory People and ask to join, um, then you can put in Gary's uh, last name and um, befriend him and have a conversation yeah. that way as well. So that would be wonderful. Do you have any, any words of wisdom for a caregiver? Um, caregiver, carer, care partner, there's so many names out there, but it's all about, you know, giving care to someone else. Um, any any final my words biggest, of wisdom? My biggest thing is control the anxiety as much as possible. I mean, that's really, and ask for help. Those are the two biggest things that I really got to stress on it. You know, keeping, keeping them in that routine, that standard run-of-the-mill lifestyle is going to make life better for both of you. I mean, so mm-hmm. I mean, it may sound like it gets boring, but you know, hey, <laughs> boring is better than stress. So, yeah, I'm doing it. I mean, about- everybody thinks you know. Everybody questions whether they're doing the job accurate or not. Everybody. So don't let that worry you. It's going to be trial and error. I mean, all the way through this is trial and error because, like I said, what works for one might not work for the other. So uh, don't be afraid. If you got something that's working, stay with it. As long as it works. Good advice. Um, Rick, do you have anything that you would want to add as far as words of advice to a caregiver? Well, uh, words of advice that I would say is to is to run out and get Gary's book. Um, I'm not saying that because he's a good friend of mine and because he's going to be doing my book. I'm saying that because it is a premier book on caregiving. I fight this disease 24-7, and I'm telling you, he, he hits – He's hit this one out of the ballpark. Uh, Just like he said, routine, routine, routine. You just can't stress that enough. My whole life, every day is a routine. And if things get out of routine, I'm in a panic mood, and it just snowballs from there. So he's – that's exactly – it's an excellent read. It's an easy read, and uh, I wish him well with it. Wonderful. And then – as far as um, a patient, um, someone who is diagnosed with this disease, um, Rick, do you have any any comments for them, any words of hope? Well, Lori, it's like I said many times before, I was fighting this disease four or five years before I was actually diagnosed. And the day I got my diagnosis, it was like someone lifted a weight off of my shoulders. Now, to say that when it's a terminal disease diagnosis seems absurd, but there's so much denial that goes on with this disease. Nobody knows yourself better than you, and if you think you have a problem, then get to your doctor. You know, they'll check your B12, they'll do a blood test, CAT scan, MRI, things like that, and then they'll refer you on. Denial is the worst thing about this disease. You know, it's going to overtake everyone that has this disease sooner or later. So it's best to get to the doctor. And when I say you accept this disease, that doesn't mean you've given up. That just means you're going to fight it as long as you can because uh, that's what you need to do. You know, I mean, these are all just my opinions, but I have this disease, and, and I embrace it because I'm like, bring it on because we'll see. You know, you may win. Alzheimer's may win the battle, but there's going to be several wars between now and the time that uh, I'm done talking. Well, I, I agree, and you have done, I mean, look at the marvelous things you have done.
for, you know, all of us throughout the world with what you have created. And um, so the disease, it, it may have slowed you down in other areas, but, boy, it's revved you up <laughs> in a lot of other ways that are helping <laughs> many, many people. So I appreciate um, both of you being on the show today and um, sharing your knowledge and and wisdom with us. Um, Rick, again, you're you're always a pleasure to have on, and we're very excited about your new book venture with Gary LeBlanc, who we interviewed today, who is the author of Staying Afloat in a Sea of Forgetfulness, Common Sense Caregiving, um, which is really um, much more than just your everyday book on Alzheimer's. It really is a resource guide, one that you can refer to um, throughout your journey and to be able to pass on to others. It's it's very well written. As Rick said, it's a simple read yet always gets to the point. Anything the two of you would like to add? Otherwise, I'm going to pull in Alan on the line here and we'll hear about his, uh, his climbing. Gary, was no, there anything just, else you'd like to say? I just want to say thank you very much. I've really enjoyed being here. Oh, wonderful. We We appreciate all you're doing. Rick, any any closing comments? That's the same way with mine, Laura. You know how much I appreciate what you've been doing for this disease and Gary and, and all the other people that's involved. And uh, I'm looking forward to listening to your guests that's coming up. So have a good day, and thanks for the time. Okay, thank you. With that, I'm going to go ahead and get Alan on the line here. Alan, are you with us? I am. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. I'm just so excited to have you back with us. Um, Alan Arnett has been on quite a journey. Uh, He has been climbing the seven summits for Alzheimer's because he knows memories are everything. And uh, we've had Alan on the show before, but we wanted to get an update on where he's at with his uh, seven summit climb and what is next. So welcome, welcome, Alan. Thanks, Laurie. I really appreciate coming back and uh, giving you guys an update on what's going on. I just got to, before we get into it, I just got to say that, you know, Rick's comments just now about that it's, um, you know, that it's an everyday battle and and that, uh, you know, um, may, you know, people with Alzheimer's may lose the war, but they're going to win a lot of battles in between. Um, you know, it's that type of, of energy that I draw from on my climbs, and it's uh, that type of of, um, of motivation and inspiration that uh, keeps me going on the summit of all these mountains. Because as I've said before, it's easier to turn around when you're trying to climb a, a really big mountain in the 20,000 foot range than it is to keep going. And and I always think about people like Rick, and I've got some other friends out there that uh, have early onset, and uh, I just think about them as well. And so they're the motivation to keep me going. Wonderful. Now, you you just got back. Where did you get back from? Can you give us an update? Yeah, I just got back about uh, 12 hours ago from uh, from Africa. Uh, this time it was on Kilimanjaro, um, and that's uh, the highest peak in Africa and on that continent. And uh, right before that was the highest one in Europe, Mount Elbrus, and that was in Russia. But the Kilimanjaro climb was fantastic. It uh uh, we had, uh, yeah, it was kind of cloudy through most of the climb, but on the summit day it really cleared up and just had an awesome view from, uh, they call it the roof of Africa. And, you know, it, it, the climb itself was good, but it was just the culture of being over in Africa and being with all the porters. And I felt like I was back in the, you know, the 1890s and uh, the British ruled part of the empire. It, it was just amazing. Oh, really? 
Wow. Now, um, how long, you know, when did you start out with that climb on Kilimanjaro, and, and how long did it take you to, to venture up to the peak? Yeah, that, that was a relatively quick one. Um, let's see, I uh, was gone for about two weeks and actually on the mountain for about uh, about ten days or so. Uh, it starts, um, Kilimanjaro is really unique because you, you start in the rainforest and literally it was just, it literally was raining. It was pouring, pouring down rain, so, you know, full rain gear and all of that and going up muddy trails start about, uh, about 9,000 feet and, uh, and start to work up and it goes to 19, 19.3 is the summit, so 19,300 feet. So it's one of the highest vertical climbs, um, of all the seven summits that I've done thus far. But you start in the rainforest, and we, uh, you know, complete with monkeys up in the tree canopies, jumping around. Blue monkeys is what they were called, and and then you go through five microclimates. So each one has a different type of vegetation to it, and it's just really, really interesting. Wow. Now, was there anything particular that was maybe a, a funny story or, or a, you know, an epiphany that happened to you on on this climb at all? Well, you know, part of it was that um, in addition to the climb, I went on a, a very short uh, safari in the Serengeti afterwards. And um, so there I saw the so-called Big Five, which are the uh, five uh, animals that uh, the hunters have traditionally tried to tried to bag. And so that includes like, you know, lions and leopards and elephants and uh, cape uh, buffaloes and I forgot the other one. But um they, uh, one of the things that our safari guide said is that one of the reasons they call them the Big Five hunters did is because they um, they have excellent memories. And so you know, obviously, anytime the word memories comes up, it uh, it uh, piques my interest. And he went on to say that uh, that these um, these animals have been known to remember hunters from pre- the previous year. So when they come back, uh, these uh, the animals when they they sense these these hunters returning. Um, they turn around and they start hunting the hunters, and yeah, it just kind of struck me at just what what a what role that memory plays in in you know life itself, just you know, broadly speaking basis. And I know this is real philosophical, but it uh, it just kind of struck me in a real um, you know real, real kind of a profound way that memories is you know as like my tagline for the whole seven summits campaign is that memories are everything and and, and you know it's, it crosses not only humans but also into the animal kingdom as well wow that is that is very interesting um yeah now how many how many summits have you have you climbed so far and what is left for you to do so yeah, so um, I've climbed, I've been on uh, six of the seven um, summits. So um, I started, let me briefly recap it, did uh, the one in Antarctica in December, and then South America in January, um, Mount Everest in April and May, and then uh, Denali uh, up in Alaska in, um, in uh, June and July, and then Mount Elbrus in Russia in August, um, and then now Kilimanjaro here in September. So I've been, I've made it to the summit of all of them except for uh, Denali, where we got stalled by um, hurricane force winds and spent eight days uh, just kind of hanging out at the 17,000 foot camp. And you know that was that was kind of that was difficult to be honest with you. It was uh, you know you're four four grown men and a in a tent uh, that allegedly is supposed to hold four men, but uh, I'm not sure about the, <laughs> the dimensions of it. Um, but it was, yeah, it was uncomfortable. It was really crowded, and, and 
every day it was just high winds and, uh, you know, really couldn't get out and do very much. But, um, you know, in the end, uh, just had to, you know, call it a day and go back down. And, you know, I, I, some people have said, well, Alan, how do you feel about your failure on Denali? And, uh, you know, I thought a lot about that question. And the way I look at it is that Denali was not a failure. I call it uh, euphemistically a non-summit. <laughs> Because, mm-hmm. um, and I kind of make the parallel with um, with researchers, and 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 from the perspective that you know not every medical research or clinical trial or uh, experiment out there in the in the world of medicine results in accomplishing the uh, the original stated objective, but the researchers learn an awful lot going through that process. And for me, it was an opportunity to stand on uh, you know, 17,000 feet and, and talk about some of my experiences with my mom and, and you know, some of the difficulties that we went through and, and uh, try to bring some education to the people that are following the climb. So in my book, Denali was a non-summit, and it was, um, you know, it was a success from the perspective of getting our message out. Well, and I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, to call it a to call it a failure, I, I you know, you can't control the weather and you've got to be safe and it had to have been I, I can't even imagine how challenging all this is. I mean it does what you're doing does not sound like at all fun to me at all. <laughs> but I know that it's something that that you must love in order to do that. I, I can't even imagine being you know, locked up in a small quarters like that and not being able to really even move. I, I mean, my joints ache just thinking about, <laughs> about it. So did, so did mine, you know, laying shoulder to shoulder yeah. with them. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I just I, I have to, you know, commend you on what it is you're doing for this cause because most of us, myself included, not a chance will we ever be able to pull off what it is you're doing. So by no shape or form um, would I consider it a failure at all as to what you're doing and the the way you're um, raising awareness. Your your website is so fabulous. Can you tell people how to get to your website and a little bit of what all is there when they would go to it? Because it's it's just incredible. Um, sure, Lori. So the way you get to it is really easy. It's just my name, Alan Arnett, um, all one word, A-L-A-N-A-R-N-E-T-T-E.com. And from from the home page, you'll see that there's a complete update on the seven summits and with a link to um, to another section, which is, has the real-time uh, dispatches. And so there, uh, on every single climb, I've been sending uh, live uh, updates, whether they're uh, sometimes they're audio updates when I call in, let's say, example from the summit, to uh, you know to dispatches where I uh, show post pictures of the climb, and I always try to try to bring into uh, try, try to combine the climb with the cause, and provide a little bit of entertainment and a little bit of education. So trying to keep it balanced, and uh, the feedback has just been just been overwhelming from the uh, from the Alzheimer's community, but also from the uh, from the climbing community. 
And one of the things I was most excited about with this project is that it allows us to reach uh, a different, I'll call it a demographic. A lot of young people that have been following my climbs for, well, since 1999, um, didn't, they, you know, they don't know a lot about Alzheimer's, especially the, the you know, the youngest, they're, let me say, in the 20s or something. And, but, um, you know, unless they had a grandparent. So what they're doing is they're starting to learn about the disease and they're starting to get educated on it. They're starting to understand the difference between aging, normal aging, and uh, perhaps, you know, early signs of dementia. So it's an opportunity to educate, raise awareness, and, um, and then also to ask people to make donations to one of our three um, so-called benefactors that uh, I ask people to donate a penny for every foot that I climb. So like for Kilimanjaro, it's like $140. And there's links to the three uh, nonprofits that we work with. 100% of the donation goes to those nonprofits. So the Cure Alzheimer's Fund, uh, which focuses on pure research, um, the Alzheimer's Association, which we know is, is being the largest nonprofit for Alzheimer's, and they just do marvelous things across the board from research to awareness to lobbying. And finally, the National Family Caregivers Association, which focuses on family caregivers and provides resources. So those are kind of the three nonprofits. Wonderful. Well, it's it's absolutely incredible um, when I go on your site. You know, you talk about... Um, you know, being able to do the podcast from the mountain and the communication in the photos you've taken um, and the journey and the writing and the blog, it, it's, it really is a fabulous, fabulous journey that you've documented for us. And so I have to thank you so much and, and all your partners in this because I know you're not doing it alone. And um, it, it must take quite a crew to be able to pull this all together um, how does how does that work? I mean, how do you guys? Because you, you're not climbing alone. Like you said, you were in a tent with four guys for probably way longer <laughs> than you want to admit. Um, how does how does that work? Getting that all getting you up the mountain. Well, I, I've been using um, international mountain guides out of um, Ashford, Washington, near Seattle, as my main um, guide, if you will, or outfitter. I wanted to uh, go with a commercial operation because that way it allowed me to focus on uh, fundraising and the other aspects of the of the campaign, uh, and not worry about logistics and trying to get climbing permits and buy food and tents and everything else. So um, international mountain guides has just been marvelous in their support of the campaign, and then um, yeah, then you know, like you say, there are other people that come along, and uh, it's been great to meet all those people. You asked me earlier about did anything profound come out of Kilimanjaro, but if I think back about the, all the seven thus far, all the six thus far, and the remaining one coming up down in New Guinea, um, is that every on every continent, every one of these climbs, someone has come up to me completely unprompted and said, "Hey, Alan, I've been following your campaign uh, and what you're doing for Alzheimer's. They've been very complimentary." And then they proceed to tell me their personal story about their interaction with this disease. And, you know, I just stand there, just kind of my mouth just drops, and I realize just whether it was in Russia with, you know, we had, there was nine people on the team and seven were from Moscow, and, and five of those seven all had some personal interaction with this disease, you know, living in Moscow, uh, to Antarctica, to South America. Uh, it's just amazing how pervasive this disease is. And, and as I opened it, talking about the inspiration I get from people like Rich, I, Rick, I also get the same inspiration from my teammates um, when they tell me their personal stories. Wonderful. It is amazing how 
this disease really can connect the world because our stories really aren't all that different. Yeah, it's exactly. Different, you different know, locations. we talked about. Yeah, and the, you know the impact from a family caregiver perspective, or on finances, um, or just the individuals going through it. Uh, it's 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 a you know it's it's a human it's a human problem. It's not you know related to lifestyles or demographics or where you live in the world. Um, and that's the reason that we've got to find a cure for it, and we've got to find better ways of dealing with it as people go through that journey. Definitely, definitely agree with you on that. Rick, no, you're still on the line. Do you have any comments at all to what Alan is saying? I certainly do. Hi, Alan. I uh, I remember talking to you last time he was on the show, and one more to go, right? It is. Thanks, Rick. Hey, good to talk to you again. That's that's incredible. I just wanted to thank you personally for what you're doing to bring awareness to this disease. It's I talk to people all the time about awareness, but uh, <laughs> climbing mountains, man, you are the man. So uh, I, I just can't thank you enough for what you're doing. I tell everybody it, 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 we're all in this together, and be it a caregiver, advocate, or patient, uh, we're we're all walking this walk together. So I, I just wanted to hop on here real quick and tell you that I couldn't appreciate more for all for everything you've done. Well, I, back to you, Rick, I, and, and for your awareness as well and everything that you're doing. So I appreciate it too. So the next one up is to uh, new, is to New Guinea, Lori, um, and this is going to be a the most exotic of all the seven summits because it's uh, I have to perhaps take a trek of six days through a leech infested jungle with um, with the local tribes that you have to bribe to get to the mountain. So it's going to be oh crazy. My God. <laughs> wow. Oh, that does not sound like my idea of a vacation. Let me tell you. <laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna make, I will in, it's go gonna ahead. make spending. A, it's gonna make spending. A, you know, spending a, a week in a in a tent look like a you know a Ritz Carlton compared to uh, you know to picking leeches off my ankles. So. <laughs> oh my gosh! I just I I would like okay. Where's my where's my can of salt? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, oh. that's a great idea. I didn't think about putting salt on me. Maybe it'll work like uh, slugs or something. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just yeah, get, yeah. Get some uh, get some sea salt and rub down. <laughs> exactly. Oh my goodness. Well, you are you are really taking on the challenges for this mission, and I I can't even imagine how proud your mother must be of you. In, in all that you are doing. I mean, because there's so many of us that, um, you know, we're just in awe of of what you're doing and the amount of time you are taking um, in your own personal life to be pulled away from your family and your friends. And I know that you, you snuck in to, and managed to make it to your daughter's wedding in between climbs. Um, <laughs> it's It's been incredible, your commitment. And so, again, we... We thank you so so much for for what it is. Now, when are you going to start your next climb? Um, I leave in about uh, let's see, about uh, 17 days, the middle of uh, October, to go down to uh, to New Guinea and begin the process of getting to the mountain. So, and then, and actually, um, I'm going to go from New Guinea to Australia because there's um, uh, maybe uh, I can come back and I can tell you why there are eight 
Seven Summits. It's a uh, it's it's a crazy little story, but I'm actually going to go finish up the uh, the Seven Summits with my eighth one down on the uh, the continent of Australia. Which uh, I've got a lot of friends, a lot of contacts, and in, in down there that I also are are dealing with this disease, and um, so I'm looking forward to to meeting them and perhaps um, you know interacting with them you know another way. Wonderful. And how long do you project that climb to take you? Um, I'll be gone for about three weeks on that one too, because uh, depending upon the the conditions, uh, it's about six days through the jungle to get to the mountain, and uh, the actual climb is not that bad. It's a, a couple. Of, it's about three days. It's a it's a sixteen thousand foot mountain, but again, it's um, in, in mountaineering parlance is the most technical of all the climbs because it's more like rock climbing where you're using ropes and protection, and, and there's something called a, a triolean traverse which is where there's a rope strung across a gap in the mountain uh, and you, you, know, you, you, you hold on with your hands and your feet, you know, sort of like those monkeys I just saw in Kilimanjaro, and you pull yourself across the rope upside down to, uh, to get from one side to the other in, in like a 100-foot uh, fall below, you, below the rope. So I'm hoping that the oh rope my- is put up well. Gosh, <laughs> it sounds like a circus Olay in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good analogy. Exactly. Oh, I'll take a video. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be we'll all be looking forward to uh, to watching um, your next climb. Now, if people wanted to um, be able to fund you for past climbs, is that still? I'm I'm assuming they're still able to do that, um, or donate um, whatever it is that they choose to to donate once they go to the site. Yeah, let me let me throw a quick uh, a quick plug in here. Um, so the the Alzheimer's Immunotherapy Program of uh, Janssen Alzheimer's um, uh, Immunotherapy, which is uh, a project um, a venture between Pfizer and J and J Johnson and Johnson, they're funding all of my climbs. So that allows every single donation to go directly to the, um, you know, to the nonprofits, the three that I mentioned, Cure Alzheimer's Fund, Alzheimer's Association, and the National Family Caregivers um, Alliance. So those, and they can absolutely go to, to, uh, to my website, which is alanarnett.com, or to our campaign website, which is climb4ad.com, the number four. And there's links there and more information. And you can actually also follow um, my clients, including this one down in New Guinea, um, uh, using a GPS tracker. I, you can follow my uh, GPS locations on top of a Google Earth map and see exactly where I am. And I update that. It's every 10 minutes it sends my new GPS location while I'm moving on these climbs. It's kind of fun. Wonderful. I call, I call my wife from the summits on these things, and, and I say, I'm here. And she says, I know. <laughs> so she, already, she already saw it on the map. Very different than when oh. I started climbing 15 years ago. <laughs> well, you know what? She might keep that GPS on you once you land home for good. <laughs> so you can keep track of you. You've got a train now, so you might you might have a problem with that when you get back. <laughs> hey, she's my she's my best friend and my best supporter, so no problem there. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, Alan, thank you so much for taking time to. Squeeze us into your busy schedule and give us an update. And, you know, I really encourage people to to follow you and uh, join your cause. Uh, though we won't be up on the mountain with you, we can pull out those pocketbooks and, and, 
and help you fight the battle. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, do you have, uh, just real quick, because we're running down on time here, do you have any other projects in mind, or are you just going to kind of rust once you're done with this then? No, we're actually talking about kind of a phase two of this and uh, perhaps uh, doing some type of, um, of um, uh, public speaking tour in 2012 to, um, you know, to show some of these pictures and talk about the disease and continue to raise awareness. Um, this is not a, this is not, again, using Rick's original analogy of the battle and the war. Um, this is a long, long uh, battle, and my commitment to this is not just through the climbs, but it's through anything I can do to help make progress. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much, Alan, um, for your time and your energy and your commitment. It, it is much appreciated um, by all of us. It's been a really fun show today with uh, Alan Arnett, who is climbing for Alzheimer's for the Seven Summits, um, Rick Phelps, who announced his his book uh, that is going to be written by Gary LeBlanc, and Gary, who um, we talked about his book, Staying Afloat in a Sea of Forgetfulness. I want to remind everyone that our next show coming up is really going to be a fun one. It's uh, no, um, September 28th, and that is at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. That would be 10 Central and 8 a.m. Pacific Time, and it's called Let's Play House, Creative Ways to Care. And this is an incredible story you're going to hear um, with two dancers and actors, um, how dance and um Acting really changed how they give care. They also do improv for Alzheimer's. It's just absolutely fascinating. And then on October 14th, I've got Soul Purpose coming in with Michelle Mason from Illinois about nurturing the hearts of those we care for. And she's got a really fascinating program that she has for people with dementia as well as their caregivers, October 21st. Uh, we're going to learn about the George G. Glenner Alzheimer's uh, Family Centers. And then further down the road in October, we'll be having Dr. Gordon Atherley of the Family Caregivers Unite on the program, as well as author Carolyn Bennett and Amina Fuller, who is running for California State Senate. So, again, we're always adding new programs. Um, please, please um, continue to listen and share our links with people. We would love to spread the word of awareness and have you be part of our family here on Alzheimer's Speaks. Thank you again for listening and have a blessed day as you think ahead to go ahead. Bye now. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Way Showers who will help your journey a lot easier.